We good? All right. Hebrews 20.20. We see Jesus. Increment 61. Elios. Joyeux anniversaire, mon cher ami et frère. Sans les mots qui vont très bien ensemble. We're going to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 today, and we'll open with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this wonderful opportunity to look into the perfect Torah of freedom, which is your word. We pray for our sister, Empress Claudia, who's about to go into surgery. We pray that you will allow for a safe Successful surgery and a swift recovery. We thank you for our brother Emery's surgery and his, his recovery ongoing now. For our brother Michael Manley, whose replacement, hip replacement went well and is recovering. We thank you for my wife Pam's recovery. We thank you for all of your faithfulness as our great physician and for all those who are in our listening audience who may be going through various kinds of tests that have to do with health or surgery, we pray that you will be very present help in time of need. And so we approach the throne of grace today to find help, timely grace, timely grace to help in time of need. All our life on this earth is a time of need, Father, And so we're constantly going to the throne of grace to find timely help in the form of grace where you dispense your grace and we find mercy to help. We pray this for ourselves and we pray this for others and we thank you for the wonderful privilege that we have to confidently and boldly approach the throne from which you dispense grace. We ask now for the grace to comprehend the grace to apprehend and appropriate your word so that we can have a meaningful, cruciform livingness in this present evil age to your glory and to the magnification of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. My heart has been throughout our teaching of Hebrews, but more recently indicted by the subject of mercy. It's all about mercy. God's plan is all about mercy. It's all about the abundant mercy and great love wherewith he loved us so that while we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with his son, Jesus Christ. Raised us up together and seated us together with him in the heavenly places. For by grace, we are saved. And we have been saved according to his mercy and not according to works of righteousness, which we have done. It's mercy. Because we have received mercy as priests whose ministry it is to gaze into the law of liberty or the Torah of freedom and see in that mirror the image of our Lord, because we receive such mercy and because we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, we do not faint in the trials and tests of life. We do not faint and give in in temptation for we have a great archpriest 
at the right hand of the Father. The Father is the one whose mercy endures forever, and the Son is our merciful archpriest. God's mercy endures forever is a declaration made 26 times in one psalm, that being Psalm 136. God's mercy is saving mercy, for he saves us according to his mercy in Titus 3.5. And his saving mercy is what he is intended to show to all of humanity in Romans 11.32. And so my heart is indicted with this subject of mercy, as the psalmist said in Psalm 45.1, Septuagint 44.1, my heart is indicted by a wonderful theme. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Mercy. It's all about mercy. Now of the Son of God, there is a major theological thesis. There's a reason why we approached Hebrews with a kind of introductory twin series. One was called Doing and Living Theology. The other one was called The Doctrine of the Mystery, 2019. And in one, we discovered mostly the thesis that I'm going to speak about first. And in the mystery, we discovered a second thesis, both of which were formulated by Bernard Lonergan. Of the Son of God, there is a major theological thesis. And that is what we're doing right now, is a theological exegesis of this holy homily called Hebrews, which is so timely for our time. Of the Son of God... There is a major theological thesis which we have concerned ourselves with in a series leading up to this theological exegesis of Hebrews. The thesis was formulated as Thesis 1 by Bernard Lonergan in his work called The Triune God Doctrines. Thesis 1 goes like this. God the Father neither made his own and only Son out of pre-existing matter, nor created him out of nothing, but from eternity generates him out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. A second major theological thesis, which we dealt with in a concurrent study, a concurrent study with doing and living theology called the Doctrine of the Mystery, was formulated by Lonergan in his work called The Redemption, and it's Thesis 17. It reads like this. This is why the Son of God, notice the Son of God is the subject in both of these theses. This is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, and was raised again. Because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. Both of these, Thesis 1 and Thesis 17, are Christological as well as theological. The latter is soteriological, 
as well as Christological. Both of these theses are essential for our present theological exegesis of Hebrews. <clears throat> the question for intelligence, a question for intelligence in the Latin is always quidsit. What is it? The question for intelligence, which I'm going to expand a little bit here in today's message, that I've asked at the outset of our study of this homily, Hebrews, is why did God the Father, who from eternity generates his Son out of his own substance as consubstantial with him, consider it fitting that his Son be perfected? And why? Through suffering. Why does one who is consubstantial with the Father and therefore in every way perfect need to be perfected is the question. And why through suffering? With Hebrews 2.17, the answer to this question comes into sharp focus. It even appears in the text of this verse. The answer, in answer to this question, in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest. The first quality attributed to this archpriest, the Son of God, who became man, suffered, died, and was raised again, this Son of Man, the first descriptor or adjective describing him is merciful. El Amon. El Amon. That's E L E long E M long O N. It's related to the word. Eleos, or mercy. Merciful and faithful. We looked at that last time, faithful, pistos. These are apt adjectives to describe Jesus, our archpriest. Jesus is the embodiment of the saving, helping mercy that God intends to show to all of humanity and, in fact, has shown to all humanity in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he keeps showing it to humanity in Jesus Christ, risen, ascended, exalted at the right hand of the Father. Both merciful and faithful are descriptors, descriptive adjectives of Jesus in the days of his contingent humanity, that is, his temporary days of the flesh, his temporary stint in, these, in this evil age, which is called in the days of his flesh, during which he made strong cries to God to deliver him from death and was heard. But this merciful and faithful are not only descriptors of Jesus in the days of his flesh, they also are descriptive of him in his age-abiding body of glory, where even now he makes intercession for us with the power of an indestructible life. His mercy and his fidelity, shown so consistently and dramatically through his awful humiliation, and even his horrific death by crucifixion. Well, that mercy and fidelity continues in his state and condition of supreme exaltation. 
We have already considered his quality of faithfulness, certainly not enough, but somewhat. Gareth Lee Cockerill, at C-O-C-K-E-R-I-L-L, adroitly summarizes the significance of Jesus becoming the faithful priest that was predicted in 1 Samuel, as we saw last time, or 1 Reigns 2.35. In his commentary on Hebrews, he wrote, quote, His becoming such a high priest is the fruition of his sonship, see on 1, 1 to 3 of Hebrews, and the full revelation of God who is characterized by loving kindness and faithfulness, Exodus 34, 6. Furthermore, by becoming such a priest, the son was perfected in his vocation as the pioneer of our salvation. Now, we must consider the mercifulness of Jesus, our archpriest, since our theme is mercy. It's all about mercy. If you're going to talk about propitiation, it's all about mercy. If you're going to talk about expiation, it's all about mercy. If you're going to talk about God's philanthropy and beneficence, it's all about mercy. If you're going to talk about the reconciliation of the world to God, it's all about mercy. Jesus is first mentioned as the incarnate Son in Hebrews 2.9. The Son of God's name is Jesus. And this is first mentioned in Hebrews 2.9. In 2.17 of Hebrews, there appears the first mention of Jesus as archpriest, usually high priest, but I say archpriest simply because it resembles the Greek far more accurately, archierus, archpriest. In Hebrews 3.1, we have both the name of Jesus and the exhortation for us as brothers and sisters and partakers of a heavenly calling to consider Jesus the apostle and archpriest of our confession. It should be an instigator of wonder here. It should instigate wonder in us that Jesus is called the apostle here in Hebrews 3.1, especially because he's not called by that descriptor anywhere else in the New Testament, though many times there is a verb that describes God's sending of him, apostello. So with the title Apostolos for Jesus, we will be encouraged to consider another major subject of our past as an assembly, that of the divine missions. But for now, we're concerned with seeing Jesus as our merciful high priest, our merciful archpriest. There's one more mention of Jesus in his role as archpriest in Hebrews before he's identified as priest through the age like Melchizedek. Starting in Hebrews 5.6, he's going to be called a priest through the age 
after the order of Melchizedek. Before that mention of him and the treatment of him as a priest like Melchizedek, there are three mentions of him as priest or archpriest. Hebrews 2.17, our first one. Hebrews 3.1, the second. And then Hebrews 4.14, where Jesus is overtly called Jesus, the Son of God. And he's also called in that same passage a great mega archpriest whom we have, says the writer, we have such a great archpriest. And he has passed through the heavens. Not like the priests of the Levitical order who passed through an outer court, a middle court, into the holy place and then the holiest of all. He has passed through the heavens into the holiest of holies, above the heavens, next to the Father enthroned. We have Jesus, the Son of God, a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. And like Hebrews 3.1, Hebrews 4.14 involves an exhortation for us to hold fast to the confession. That is, to what and to whom we acknowledge to be truth and reality, namely Jesus. We should be accused of clinging to him. Well, those people cling to a merciful and faithful archpriest. You're right, we do. As if to expand what we're told in Hebrews 2.17 about our merciful archpriest, and I hope you'll follow along with this. This is giving an illumination of what Hebrews is all about. As if to expand what we're told in Hebrews 2.17 about our merciful archpriest, the PT says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have an archpriest who is not able to sympathize. And that word in the Greek is actually sum pathesi. Sum, S-U-M, and then P-A-T-H, long E, S-A-I. Sum pathesi. That's actually transliterated into the English language as sympathy. So, for we do not have an archpriest who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, identify with them, we could say, empathize with us in them, we could say, having himself been tempted while being tested without yielding to sin. Our merciful archpriest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He suffers, and that's the word patheo, P-A-T-H-E-O, with, and that's S-U-M, us. He suffers with us. The very word sympathos or sympathy means he suffers with us. So the great but simple reality comes out of this that the one who suffered for us now suffers with us. He hasn't just been exalted to forget us. So many people in this world become exalted and forget those with whom they were once associated, but not Jesus. He's with us. He suffers with us. 
including right down to the feelings of our infirmities. So our merciful archpriest suffers with us. He who suffered for us and died for us now suffers with us during our interval of testing in which we are sometimes tempted. And our main temptation isn't so much toward the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, pride of life. The main temptation that's addressed in Hebrews is to forsake our eschatological hope. And sometimes people forsake that great hope of a new creation and a universal redemption uh, in the future. They forsake that great hope because they have lost hopes in this world. They've had pinned their hopes on certain people and things and happenings in this world. And they didn't come to fruition, so they were tempted to give up on the big hope. Don't do it. Don't do it. And that's why I'm here to keep on saying, don't withdraw from the Lord with an evil heart of unbelief. But let's press on. Our merciful archpriest is able to sympathize with us. And in Hebrews 4.16, we find an integral link to mercy in the continuation of the exhortation where the PT issues this co-exhortation. Remember, he's a leader from the front. He says, let us do this, not you do this. He's not like a Pharisee who lays heavy burdens on the flock and then doesn't lift a finger to help. He's with them in this, with them in the trenches, with them in the suffering, with them in the testing. And so his co-exhortation is, so let us approach with bold confidence the throne from which God dispenses grace. We call it the throne of grace. It's actually the throne from which God dispenses grace in order to take hold of, guess what? Mercy. Eleos. Eleos. Mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. You say, well, every once in a while I have a time of need. Well, let me tell you something. This is the time of need. It is always the time of need. Because as 1 Peter 1.6 says, though we are urged to rejoice at the prospect of our eschatological salvation in 1 Peter 1.5, which is also spoken of in Hebrews 2.3 and 9.28, as well as 5.9 and 9.12. We rejoice at the prospect of our eschatological salvation, although for now, Peter said, it is necessary that we experience some grief and pain in various kinds of testings, parasmos, parasmois, that involve temptation. We are not to grieve or experience a modicum or a measure of pain in this life as those who have no hope, however. To grieve without hope is unbearable. To grieve while having this hope is bearable. 
1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like the others who have no hope. People who have no hope for an afterlife. People who have no hope in Christ. People who have no eschatological hope, future hope. In fact, holding on confidently to our eschatological hope is how we actually demonstrate that we are the house of our faithful archpriest in Hebrews 3.6. What is the mark and characteristic of the house that God is building, the house of Christ, the faithful priest? It is the people who have hold on an eschatological hope and don't let it go. And so in this evil age, again, I call it that in Galatians 1.4, doesn't mean everything that happens is evil. It just means that compared to the age that's coming, the messianic age that's coming, this is an evil age which has many evil agencies in it. So in this evil age, when mercy is a rare quality, if you went around trying to find mercy from people, You might get discouraged after a while. So when mercy is a rare quality, as it is in this life, we should consider our merciful archpriest, Jesus, who's always merciful. By doing so, it's my prayer that we will be among the blessed of Matthew 5-7. In the Beatitudes, that one says, Blessed are those who show mercy or who become merciful and who obtain mercy. They will obtain mercy. Most of our days on earth, we probably cannot rely on people to be merciful. Sometimes people, not being cruel in their own personalities, are just too busy to be merciful or too overcome to be merciful. And so we can't rely on people to be merciful. If we have friends and fellow members of the body of Christ that are merciful, we are highly blessed. But we can rely on our merciful archpriest who suffers with us and from whom we receive mercy and through whom we take hold of timely grace. I've recently been surprised, and I love being surprised in the Word, sometimes not while I'm reading it, but just while I'm sitting around or walking or running or whatever. I've, although more walking than running lately, I've recently been surprised by an inclusio in Matthew. That is, a verse early on in Matthew and a verse very close to the close of Matthew. The Gospel narrative attributed to Matthew has at its beginning the announcement of Jesus as Emmanuel. And it begins with idu, or look, or behold. It's kind of an asterisk uh, grabber of our attention. Idu, I-D-O-U. And it's a quotation of Isaiah 7.14 in Matthew 1.23. It says, look, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, at the other end of Matthew, that's Matthew one twenty three. at the other end of Matthew, Matthew 28.20, 20, 
The risen Jesus says to his disciples, look, the word is idu again, I am with you all the days. Notice the word all the days. It's the word pasas tes, tes hemeras. Pasas tes hemeras. And we're going to see that that's a familiar phrase. I am with you all the days, he says, until the completion of the age. That's the culmination of the messianic age when that fully comes, the consummation of the full coming of the age of Messiah. And so Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, not only in the days of his flesh, but now throughout all the days of the age as a merciful archpriest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Jesus couldn't be any more with you if he were with you in the flesh right now. He was crucified in weakness, and now he lives by the power of God and intercedes for us in the power of an indestructible life as we go through our time of weakness. Jesus says, all the days, I am with you all the days. Idu, I am with you all the days. Pasas tas hemeras. Guess where we saw that before? It's the exact phrase used by the man of God in his prophecy to Eli in First Reigns or First Samuel 2.35. Remember? Or have you already forgotten last message? Where he says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, and everything that is in my heart he will do, and I will make for him a faithful house, and he will go in the authority of my Christ all the days. Same phrase used by Jesus in Matthew 28, 20. So in a kind of an oblique way, Jesus is referring to himself as our great archpriest, merciful and faithful archpriest who's with us all the days. Such is our merciful and sympathetic archpriest who, though from eternity is generated out of God the Father's own substance as consubstantial with the Father, as the Son of God, he became man, suffered, died, in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest. He who suffered and died for us lives for us and suffers with us. Such is our Emmanuel. Such is our merciful archpriest. You can wonder all you want about prophetic schemes and what fits with what Jewish holiday or Jewish feast days and festivals and try to line up history with this and you can try to figure out who you think the prophetic antichrist or the beast or the whore of Babylon is. 
I would rather see Jesus as my great archpriest, as our great archpriest during this time of testing that may involve temptation. And I'm speaking of testing that's going to intensify in our nation for there are many forces that are at work to destroy the basis of freedom to express our faith. So it's also important in Hebrews 2.17 that we pay attention and that we are attentive. Kavanah is a word that we'll be speaking of. It's a Hebrew word that means be attentive, but it also means to be intent. In fact, it means to be more attentive than you were before. So it's important that we are attentive to the phrase, in things pertaining to God. He is a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God. Ta pros ton theon. Things pertaining to God. That's also Hebrews 2.17. You see, we can't leave a verse until we've dealt pretty thoroughly with it. Not exhaustively, but I like to do a pretty thorough look at every verse. Jesus, the Son of God, is now a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God. Or it could even be in things face-to-face with God. The primary things pertaining to God in which Jesus serves and ministers as our archpriest are what is known as propitiation, propitiation, and intercession. Now, I like the word propitiation, not least because it's a controversial term and it's meaning controversial. And we're going to dance around this term like a campfire, but we're going to get close to the fire too. And I want to do this because it's very important. Propitiation. There's a related term called expiation. So far, I've actually put in my notes propitiation slash expiation as one concept. But I think there is a distinction between these two, and to rightly divide the word of truth on this is extremely important. It has to do with what was accomplished on the cross by Jesus Christ that has everything to do with mercy and what was accomplished by him in his faithful obedience to God's saving will, which has everything to do with his faithfulness. And not only has Jesus worked out and brought forth and become our propitiation, but he makes the benefits of that work on the cross available to us continually. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin is one intriguing verse you might think about in 1 John 1, 7. But the primary things that pertain to God are propitiation and intercession. Propitiation is all about mercy. So is intercession. Propitiation is about the mercy that triumphs over judgment, James 2.13. It's about the abundant mercy of God, Ephesians 2.4. The saving mercy of God, Titus 3.5. The mercy that God has shown to all of humanity in his son and in his son's death, which has once and for all and forever 
put away sin. Notice that term, put away sin. That's found in Hebrews 9.26. And take away the sin of the world is related to it in John 1.29, where we deal with the Lamb of God. Takes away the sin of the world. For this reason, Jesus is called a merciful and faithful archpriest in the things that pertain to God. Between the two verses in Matthew that reveal Jesus to be God with us, Emmanuel, in 123, and Jesus with us to the end of the age, we see Jesus as a revelation of the mercy of God and as the mediator of divine mercy. He's also, throughout the days of his flesh, a teacher of mercy. Now, we're going to take another shift to another gear now in this message. In Matthew 9.13, Jesus told the Pharisees to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. Now, did they? No. The complete Jewish Bible, I find to be an exquisitely wonderful translation on almost every passage. The complete Jewish Bible grasps the meaning well by translating sacrifice there as animal sacrifices. Go and learn what it means that God does not desire or he is not satisfied by animal sacrifices, but he delights in mercy. Mercy is the result of the sacrifice of his son, of course. Later on, Jesus said to the Pharisees, that was 9.13 of Matthew. Later on, Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you had known what this means, in other words, if you had learned what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's Hosea 6.6, incidentally. If you had gone and learned what that means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Then you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. Today we would say, then you wouldn't have canceled the innocent. If you knew that God desires mercy, you wouldn't be slandering, you wouldn't be canceling, you wouldn't be doxing or trolling or maligning people or hating your president or hating police or hating black people or hating white people or attributing racism to white people or racism to black people. And there are racists today all over the place, black and white ones, all over the place. But love does not record and make a record of the evils. Mercy is a quality that is so needed today. If you had gone and learned what this means, I desire or am pleased with mercy and not sacrifice or animal sacrifices or rituals of many kind, then you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. 
So evidently between Matthew 9.13, where they condemned or canceled Jesus. Imagine the cancel culture of that time, Pharisees. We have a cancel culture of our time, the new Pharisees. Imagine canceling Jesus, God in the flesh. You know why they did it? For eating with sinners and tax collectors. Undesirable people. Deplorable people, irredeemable people, bad people. And in 12.7 of Matthew, after they had condemned Jesus' disciples for picking and eating heads of grain on the Sabbath day, Matthew 12.1. Jesus used the Bible to rebuke these people. Well, didn't David eat the showbread right off the altar? Because his men were hungry. So by saying, I take no pleasure in sacrifice, the God of Israel was reiterating the principle of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, or the Septuagint, Psalm 39, 7 through 9, in which the Messiah is speaking, as we know from Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, the Messiah is speaking through the psalmist. The Holy One is borrowing the tongue of the psalmist and he speaks to God there and says, you don't want sacrifice. That means you don't find satisfaction with animal sacrifices and offerings. But you have perfected ears for me, says the psalm. You have perfected or completed or prepared ears for me. Ears and through the ear canal, the Messiah heard the commands of the Father and was obedient and faithful to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, he's highly exalted, given a name above every name, a name at the sound of which every knee will bow. And every tongue will acknowledge Yahweh to be Yeshua, to the glory of God. He goes on to say, you didn't ask for whole burnt offering for sin. That means of the animal kind. And then in verse 7, then I, that's Jesus, according to the interpretation of Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Then I said, look, I've come. It's written about me in the scroll of the Bible. I resolve to do your will, in verse 8, my God, and your law is in the midst of my being. That's literally in the midst of my guts, my splunkna, if you compare it to Philippians 1.8. So that which pertains to God, in Hebrews 2.17, is mercy. Jesus is therefore a merciful archpriest, even as he is a faithful, priest and faithful also has the nuance there of trustworthy not only did he exercise trustful faithfulness in his father in his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion but now he is a faithful archpriest his faithfulness continues but his trustworthiness continues you can rely on him you can rely on him for mercy so 
he is therefore a merciful archpriest, even as he is a faithful priest in fulfillment of 1 Samuel 2.35, Septuagint, one reigns 2.35. That he is a faithful archpriest accentuates his obedience. Listen carefully. There's another gear yet, and then we'll stop, or then we'll just keep flying one or the other. But it says that he is a faithful archpriest accentuates his obedience. In 1 Samuel, again, 1 Samuel, there's a, the Spirit keeps pointing his finger toward this book, which is also 1 Reigns in the Septuagint. In chapter 15, verses 22 to 23, the same God who, quote, takes no pleasure in animal sacrifices does take pleasure in obedience. Now, this doesn't mean that God didn't command animal sacrifices. He did. It simply means that he finds no satisfaction and for sins in those sacrifices, and he knows that they cannot take away sin. So obedience is something he's pleased about. As 1 Samuel shows, the rejection of the house of Eli the priest in its earlier chapters. So it, it also shows the rejection of the house of Saul. The house of Eli in the early chapters, the house of Saul in the middle and later chapters. And Saul is the king of Israel. Eli, the high priest, Saul, the king. Both rejected for a faithful priest and an obedient king who does all that's in God's heart. Samuel the prophet, now all grown up in 1 Samuel 15, said to Saul, after the battle with Agag and the Amalekites, Samuel said, Has the Lord taken as much pleasure in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices as in hearing the voice of the Lord? Look, listening is superior to sacrifice, and obedience is better than the fat of rams. For divination, says the Greek text, divination is sin. And household gods or idols bring grief and pain because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord will also reject you from being king over Israel. So as merciful archpriest, Jesus fulfilled God's desire for mercy. He desires mercy, says the scripture. As faithful, listen carefully again. As merciful archpriest, Jesus fulfilled God's desire for mercy. As faithful priest, Jesus fulfilled God's delight in obedience. His faithful obedience, all the way to the extent of the death of the cross, is called the faithful death of Christ by Martinus de Boer in his excellent commentary on Galatians. I read that whole commentary in great detail and noted things throughout it in great detail, thinking I might do a commentary on Galatians. I didn't, and I haven't yet. I'm doing one on Hebrews. But that faithful death of Christ led to the expiation of sin and the propitiation of sins, and I'm deliberately separating those two to rightly divide something about them. 
Together they add up to the purification for sins. You see, the big theme is he made purification for sins in Hebrews 1.3. The smaller theme that fits into that theme is expiation, propitiation in 2.17, which will also be throughout the rest of the epistle or the discourse. So, consequently, Jesus is the mediator of God's mercy to all of humankind, disobedient humankind even, in Romans 11:30 to 32. This is what it means that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, in 1 John 2, 1, is the propitiation for our sins, or propitiation slash expiation for our sins, and for the sins of the whole world, in 2, 2 of 1 John. It means that Jesus is the mediator of God's mercy to all. And this is what it means that Jesus is a merciful archpriest. As the merciless house of priests, merciless house of priests under Eli was rejected, so the faithless house of Saul, the king, was rejected. They were replaced by the sure mercies of David's house, Acts 13.34, and the house of the son of David, Jesus the king of kings, and the house of the faithful archpriest, Jesus, whom we see crowned with royal glory and priestly honor. We see Jesus crowned with royal glory and priestly honor. One Reigns, also known as 1 Samuel, contains the narrative of the rejection of a priestly house that had no mercy or faithfulness connected to it and of a royal house that had no obedience connected to it and the prophecy of a faithful priest and a man who would do all that is in God's heart and soul is the prophecy of a priest and a king in one person, the son of David, the son of God, our Lord Jesus. So propitiation, just to prepare us for something coming down the road where we'll deal with this subject a little more, propitiation is not about judgment. It's about mercy that triumphs over judgment. Saving mercy, which God has shown to all in Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Hebrews 10, 5 to 7, once again, the PT quotes Psalm 39, 7 to 9, A, in the Septuagint, which in your English Bible is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, A. But he changes the phrase, he perfected ears for me, to Jesus speaking to the Father and saying, you perfected or fitted a body for me. By doing so, the PT recognized that ears in Psalm 40 in verse 6, LXX 39.7, was a synecdoche, which is a figure of speech where the part is put for the whole. In, in this case, the ears, the part, were put for the whole body. This was in order to make fully and more fully round out the notion that the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, had to be made like his brothers and sisters, his siblings, in every way by partaking of blood and flesh. 
He's our elder brother. When I'm on my deathbed, if I have time to think about where I'm going, I'll be thinking about going to see my older brother. You say, you have three sisters. Yeah, wonderful ones. Three younger sisters. Wonderful sisters. I do, and I'm grateful. But I don't have a brother, an older brother. But I do have an older brother, and I'm going to see him when I die. And his name is Jesus. And he's your older brother too. And he cares for us in ways that you can't even imagine. He's the best older brother you ever saw or heard of. On my deathbed, I'm going to be looking forward to, and I'm looking forward to it now, seeing my older brother. And so... He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. Blood and flesh. God prepared a body for him in the act of his incarnation to show that God took pleasure not in animal sacrifices but in the mercy that would be shown through the self-sacrifice of his son. For God to show his mercy, he required his own self-sacrifice which is the self-sacrifice of his son. Animal sacrifices and grain offerings, as well as whole burnt offerings called holocausts, were only faint depictions and types of this once-and-for-all sacrifice, which resulted in God showing saving mercy to all people throughout all of time. That God does not take pleasure in sacrifice does not mean that he does not take pleasure in the self-sacrifice of his son, the son of his love. On the contrary, the offering of the son by which he made propitiation slash expiation for the sins of the world is entirely pleasing and forever so to God the Father. For that offering and sacrifice was to him a fragrant aroma, and still is, and always will be, in Ephesians 5.2. Therefore, it says, be imitators of God. As cherished children, walk in love, as Christ did in a life that culminated in his offering of himself as a fragrant aroma to God. Moreover, that was the means by which God's anger, yes, I said anger, God's wrath, yes, I said wrath, was turned away and by which he could freely express his love to human beings. Love he always had for human beings, but which he could freely express with sin having been put away. His wrath was toward sin, not sinners. This is why Hosea 14.4 records Yahweh saying, I will love them openly for my anger has turned from them. Merciful is E-L-E-E-M-O-N E-L-E, long E, M-O-N and faithful, pistos are apt adjectives then in Hebrews 2.17 to describe Jesus our archpriest Jesus 
is the embodiment of the saving, helping mercy of God. The mercy that God intends to show to all of humanity and has in fact shown to all of humanity yet to be manifested and expressed and felt and experienced by all of humanity. Both merciful and faithful are descriptors of Jesus in the days of his contingent humanity or the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5.7. And that's the days which the so-called four Gospels narrate. And, however, he is still merciful and faithful in his age-abiding body of glory. His mercy and his fidelity, shown so consistently and dramatically through his awful humiliation and horrific death by crucifixion, continues in his state and condition of supreme exaltation. Mercy and faithfulness, faith, fidelity, faithfulness, and trustworthiness of Jesus Christ continues in his body of glory. In fact, his mercy and fidelity also continue in the members of his house. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us in order to do what? In order to purify for himself a people, zealous for noble accomplishments, Titus 2.14. These are things we have to talk about as pastors in Titus 2.15 and insist, insist upon. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. So again, as we close, let's do our own inclusio. The answer to our initial question of intelligence, that question being, why did the Son have to be perfected and why through suffering? Now we've had that answer given to us more fully here. The answer, so that he could be perfected in the vocation of faithful and merciful archpriest, and by doing so, to be the self-revelation of God, which is his loving and merciful, beneficent and faithful self-dedication to all human beings and all of creation. Evangelists, you're wasting your time when you talk about people demanding they dedicate themselves to God without first explaining them the gospel, which is God's dedication to man. This perfection, or perfecting, or completion of Jesus, the Son, could best be realized through the suffering of the Son, whereby he made purification slash propitiation for sins by becoming sin for us. We'll have more to say about propitiation, expiation in subsequent increments. But now, Father, we've accomplished another increment of study, another contribution to the enlightenment of believers with regard to this holy homily called Hebrews, a fitting document for our own time. And so, Father, grant us the grace to approach boldly the throne from which you dispense grace so that we can find grace for ourselves and find grace for others in our weakness. We thank you for this privilege, and we thank you 
that we even now, whatever our testings are, we can have the confidence of a great archpriest who is ministering with things pertaining to you, Father, and on our behalf. Amen.